This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Paul Sweeney. So we do need to get into the virus and take a look at some of the headlines, certainly, that we've seen, because what we're seeing is COVID-19 cases really tick higher around the globe. Let's get our daily check on the virus. Someone we've reached out to several times over the summer, most recently in late August, is Dr. Seth Letterman. He's chairman, president, CEO, and founder of the New York-based specialty pharmaceutical company, Tonics Pharmaceuticals, and he joins us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Letterman, so great to have you here with Paul and myself. How are you? I'm well, thank you, but alarmed at the increasing cases in some of these states. Well, talk to me about that. I, too, am alarmed. And, you know, I was talking last week that I was watching some of the evening news programs and just to see the maps where there are increasing cases of COVID-19 again. And basically, the country was blanketed with increases in cases. I look around the globe, I'm seeing the same thing. And, you know, what we talked about last week is here we go. Here is the second wave. It seems that in some of the places, for example, Montana, maybe the Dakotas, it's really the first wave. That's true. And it's unfortunate that the message about mask wearing and social distancing didn't get out in front of it. But I think that part of part of the problem in places they're experiencing their first wave is that there was a, perhaps a complacency that it wouldn't happen to them. But I'm encouraged that in places like New York City and other places have already had a fair number of COVID cases, that the increase is much more blunted. And I think it's evidence of both some amount of herd immunity and also that people are more concerned about social distancing and more compliant with wearing masks. So, Doctor, you know, I watched a lot of football over the weekend, college football, (laughs) professional football, and boy, I saw a lot of people in the stands, particularly in a lot of the markets in Texas and other places, not so much uh, in the Northeast, but it still seems to be a regional issue about some of the basic principles we've been trying to follow, social distancing, wearing masks, washing hands, that it's just not resonating with people, And, and I just... To me, that is probably a, as big an issue as the impending cold weather. It's frustrating to me. I'm, a, as you know, a doctor and a drug developer. So why people resist wearing masks is beyond my understanding. All I can say is that if people did follow the basic tenets of wearing masks, observing social distancing, washing hands, that there would be a lot less pain and suffering. But I'm not sure how in a free society we can mandate it further than it has been mandated. Well, it does make me wonder then, you know, what we do. It's interesting. I was watching, was it 60 Minutes over the weekend, and they did a whole thing on some of the treatments that are out there in terms of treating the virus and asked you know, various doctors, and they made a point in the piece of saying when they were asking, what would you rather have, a vaccine or a mask? And 
and I think almost all of them were like, I want a mask. We know it works. It's really easy. It makes such a difference. But but you're yeah. right. It's, you know, in Asia, it's, you know, in a lot of Asian countries, it's mandatory. There's an app. Like, there's all these things that you don't really have a choice. In the U.S., um, it's a very, very different story. So, so Dr. Letterman, where do we go from here? What, what, how do you see, like, the next six months or 12 months playing out for us? Well, there's some encouraging signs. I think that, uh, as I mentioned, New York City, there's widespread mask wearing, almost universal, and things are really, I think, roaring back. Uh, people are, they know how serious this can be and and, and how effective mask wearing and other uh, standard practices can be. But I'm also very encouraged by the developments of therapeutics and vaccines and uh, Contrary to, I guess, the plurality of opinions on 60 Minutes, I would prefer to have a vaccine, but it would have to be a vaccine that will take a while to develop that would provide durable immunity and would optimally prevent spreading, because that's really the type of vaccine that can stop a pandemic in its tracks. Well, but how long does that take? Adorable, right? Because right? we, we... Yep. because yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, please go ahead. It, it takes a while because what we really need to know. I think that the first vaccines that are being studied now, and some of them seem very interesting. They will have data from people who have been infected within a month or two or three months after getting vaccinated, and I think it's likely that the protection of the vaccines some, maybe all of them, that are in part of Operation Warp Speed will provide that kind of short-term protection. But a really important question is whether they will be protective a year out. And the difference between that early protection and later protection is mostly antibodies. So antibodies protect early on, but then they fade. And what's important in long-term protection is T-cell immunity. So I think that it will take a while to show that a vaccine will have durable protection. All right. So, Doctor, is this going to be a cocktail of uh, potential remedies vaccines, or do you think one blockbuster is going to come on the market and just kind of be the one? Well, I think it will be an evolution. I think the first vaccines may not be the best, and there'll be an evolution. That's what I imagine. And then it may very likely be that different vaccines will be better for people at different stages of life. For example, older people may need a different vaccine, which is already the case for flu and other vaccines. And then uh, there could be different vaccines for people with different levels of immune competence. So people with healthy immune systems may benefit from, call it a stronger vaccine, and people who have problems in their immune system might benefit from, call it a weaker vaccine. But the important thing about a really effective vaccine is a really effective vaccine can stop people from spreading it so that they can really end this phenotype of a super spreader and and if that becomes nullified, right. then obviously a lot of lives will be saved. And, and Dr. Letterman, you know, I think one of the issues is, boy, there's the science part of it, and that's so difficult, but we've got some great minds around the world focusing on it. And then assuming the science has worked out and a vaccine or vaccines plural is uh, found, 
Then the question becomes, all right, now we've got to produce this thing, we've got to distribute this thing, uh, becomes the whole sales channel, the whole, uh, and that is a daunting task. How are you thinking about that? Well, it's an, it's an issue, uh, certainly, but Operation Warp Speed has been remarkable in the way that they have uh, planned to distribute approximately 100 million doses of six to eight different vaccines and now a number of therapies to many Americans. There's also obviously the global issue um, and issues about global access, but just focusing on the United States, it is a huge logistical uh, challenge, but one that is being tackled by by warp speed, at least with these medicines. And I I believe there's been a discussion about since the administration has uh, paid for the development of these products um, and in some cases purchased them, that uh, even the the cost of of obtaining them is going to be reasonable or subsidized by the government. Which is kind of mind-blowing, that whole process. So, you know, one thing I want to know, um, Dr. Letterman, is you guys have a couple of vaccines specifically. Can you just give us an update on on where they are and and the progress of them? Sure. Our vaccines are based on live replicating viruses. One is based on horsepox, the other on something called bovine parainfluenza virus. And we are working on live replicating viruses because they are known to to uh, trigger T cell immunity. And we will not be the first. We're not part of warp speed. Mm-hmm. But we think that the long-term solution of this is to have vaccines that trigger T cell immunity. We envision that either ours or uh, one of the other companies working in, in this small area of the vaccine programs might someday become a childhood vaccine, something like MMR, mumps, measles, rubella, because we think we have to think not only about the people that are alive today, but future generations are going to have to contend with COVID-19. This this virus is not going anywhere, and it will be something we believe that humans will have to contend with for the rest of time. Hey, just a quick follow. Just got about 40 seconds here. I mentioned herd mentality. I know that it's been talked about. Some have said it could be productive here. We're going to talk about it a, bit, a little bit later on our broadcast. Just quickly, your take on that. I think the good news is that it appears that people who recover have an immunity to the virus. It's something that we couldn't have said six months ago. The virus has only been around for mm. nine months. Okay. So um, that's very encouraging. And certainly, I think the flat uh, infection rates and sickness rates in New York uh, suggest that there's some level of herd immunity. It's surprising because the number of people with antibody responses are lower than you would expect to be required for herd immunity, but we believe that the missing piece is that there are a number of people with T-cell immunity that either don't have antibodies or had antibodies and went away. So I am encouraged about the prospects of herd immunity, and we may get it before there's even a vaccine. 
Well, so glad to get your thoughts on that. Really, really appreciate that. Dr. Seth Letterman, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer, Tonics Pharmaceuticals, on the phone from New York City. But it's, you know, I feel like every time I have a conversation with someone, Paul, from the medical community, you know, you really do learn something, whether it's T-cells, whether it's, you know, the different yep. paths to like getting this under control. Yep, absolutely. And we just need to be continued on that learning curve. Yeah, no doubt. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Paul Sweeney on this Monday. So PPP, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program as part of the $2 trillion CARES Act. Well, it was set up to offer forgivable loans to small businesses that would help kind of keep them going through the lockdowns here in the U.S. But things didn't go exactly as planned. They never do. Here with her Business Week story, Bloomberg News finance reporter Michelle Davis. She's on the phone in Vermont along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. He joins us on the phone from Massachusetts. You know, Joel, it's just never a straight line, especially when you're dealing with tons and tons of money and trying to get it out to people fast. Yeah, what's what's interesting about this story um, it, with, that totally caught our attention the moment that Michelle started talking to us about it was that you know this is a th- this story is about the best intentions um, mm-hmm. and when the PPP program originated there there were a ton of small businesses that were left in a world of hurt because they didn't have existing relationships with the big banks so the big banks actually turned to the the, the uh, vendors who they had existing relationships with and within a blink of an eye two thirds of that money was out the door and small businesses were left reeling. And to make up for that, in the second round of PPP loans, by that point, um, uh, the rules sort of got a little bit looser. And instead of just having big banks uh, be the ones that could be lenders, they also turned to fintech. And in the process, turns out, months later, we can look back on some of this data, as Michelle did, and it turns out that there was a fair amount of fraudsters that were (laughs) taking uh, handouts in all of this. Michelle, how did you find out that 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 was uh, that was even happening, and what did the data show? So I read through all of the criminal complaints that have come out on PPP fraud. You know, all of the Department of Justice uh, filings and all of the court systems, and I cross-referenced a lot of the information there with uh, some data that the Small Business Administration uh, releases publicly on you know, how many loans have been awarded and, and the lenders on the other side of those loans. And in, you know, identifying these lenders, I, I found that uh, fintechs and non-bank online lenders handled 70 for, 75% of the loans that are currently, you know, being probed for fraud, even though when you look at the 5.2 million loans that were issued as part of the program, fintechs are only on 15% of those. So, you know, 15 versus 75% of the ones that are currently being looked at for fraud is definitely a a pretty alarming trend. And part of the issue seems to be that in the rush to get this money out, um, a lot of these fintechs, you know, they had good intentions, which was to to get money to entities that banks weren't doing business with because, you know, they didn't have existing relationships with. But it seems because a lot of it was automated, there wasn't a lot of due diligence done. And so, you know, in in a lot of the cases I looked at, uh, it was evident that if, if someone had just conducted a, a public record, record search or, you know, Googled these companies, they would have realized that millions of dollars were being sent to businesses that didn't exist, didn't have employees or, you know, had been dormant for years before the pandemic started. Wow. So, Michelle, this is a fascinating story. And unfortunately, when we heard about the PPP program, we kind of said, 
Boy, this looks like an area we're going to see a lot of money changing hands, an area ripe for fraud. Do we have any sense as to the total dollars kind of involved here? So the cases brought by DOJ so far only represent around $175 million, uh, in alleged alleged fraud, which is, you know, a really small fraction of the $525 billion uh, in loans that have been approved. Uh, but I talked to someone at PayNet, which is a, a unit of Equifax, and they, you know, conducted a, an analysis of all the loans larger than $150,000. And they said about 5% of those raised red flags to them and looked, you know, sketchy, warranted some due diligence. So that's about up to $20 billion worth of, of potential fraud. And that's just for loans bigger than 150000 This same person at Paynet said if, if he had access to the smaller loans, the number would probably be a lot bigger because those are you know loans that don't get as much scrutiny. Another interesting trend related to that is that the fintechs actually tended to process some of these smaller loans that even the FBA has said it's not going to audit as much as some of the, the bigger loans. And, and Michelle, your reporting, it was pretty fascinating. I, I, I uh, thought it was telling that some of these loans were actually processed by fintechs so quickly that the, <laughs> the people who were requesting the money were actually shocked at how quickly they got it. Um, who were some of the, the big fintech players in all of this? So Cabbage, uh, an online lender who before this had never processed a single SBA loan, uh, ended up becoming the second biggest CPP lender uh, by application volume, you know, after they got approval to participate. And they appeared uh, quite a bit in my analysis, as did lenders like Crossover Bank and uh, Celtic Bank, which these are kind of these behind-the-scenes fintech banks that partner with a ton of fintechs, and they provide the funding while the fintech, you know, will do the processing on the front end. Bluevine was another one that showed up a ton. And uh, an interesting stat uh, related to Cabbage in particular was that – Turns out 75% of the applications that Cabbage processed flowed through without any human intervention or manual review. And they said that the median approval time for, you know, their loans was four hours. But I found people who, who got their loans approved in as little as an hour. That's including, like, not only processed by the fintech, but also SBA has already, you know, signed off and uh, agreed to uh, issue the funds. And Meanwhile, you know, banks were taking weeks in some cases to, to send some of this money out. So I don't want to get ahead of my, myself here, Michelle, but if there were to be um, more stimulus that could help small businesses, is there any sense if there are any additional sort of fail-safes that are in place yet or could be in, in put in place before a new wave of, of uh, help went out to small businesses? I think a lot of this revolves around the actual CARES Act, which uh, in it, it says that, you know, that the government will hold harmless any lenders that basically take borrowers uh, representations at face value. So if a borrower says, like, I'm eligible for this loan, the lender can't get in trouble for, you know, uh, believing that if that turns out to be true. But there is a lot of question around, you know, just what, how do you define negligence? If, if someone says, I deserve this loan, but actually, you know, there's no record of there being a business you know, what is the lender's responsibility in that instance? I think if the law, you know, if there were a little more clarity around what they were responsible for, how much diligence is required, uh, this sort of situation could probably be avoided. In yeah. The 
we knew that there were going to be problems as we rushed out mm. to get money because people really needed it. But nonetheless, as the details come out, as you report, Michelle, it's just a little bit, um, you know, unsettling to say the least. Uh, Jill Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from Massachusetts. And check out Michelle Davis's her story. It's in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week that's online on the Bloomberg and on newsstand. She's finance reporter at Bloomberg News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the Monday edition of Bloomberg Business Week Economics. There's a new survey out from Pew Research. Uh, they talked with or surveyed 14 nations with advanced economies. And while many of the findings are to be expected, some not so much. So let's get into it with Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. It's his latest column, and Andy joins Paul Sweeney and me on the phone from New Hampshire. So, Andy, tell us um, a little bit about this survey and what they set out to do. Yeah, so Pew has been running these surveys now for many years. It's a survey of global opinion and um, national opinion. And what has drawn everybody's attention this year is that global views of China have turned sharply negative. Um, And it's obvious why. Um, Most people around the world, according to this survey, believe that China has botched the response to coronavirus. There was a cover-up. They denied local officials in Wuhan, denied there was human-to-human transmission, and they silenced doctors, who uh, whistleblower doctors. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, the image of President Xi Jinping has suffered very badly. Majorities around the world in these 14 countries, the world's richest, most advanced democracies, don't trust Xi Jinping to do the right thing in global affairs, according to the Pew survey. That's the story everybody focused on. But it's only half the story. The country that did way, way worse than China and the leader that performed even more poorly than Xi Jinping was the United States and Donald Trump. And, you know, the story there, frankly, is that there is no global leadership. Both of these great powers have come out of coronavirus with their reputation in tatters globally. So it's interesting here. Is there a concern as it relates to China that this wasn't uh, something that just escaped from the country, that perhaps it was something from the central government, as some conspiracy theorists uh, believe? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's what the conspiracy theorists say. But look, this was a response in two parts. I mean, so the first part of this was a botched initial response. Much of this occurred at a local level. And, of course, it, it's, it, it points up failures in China's governance system. A lot of people think that local officials basically didn't want to put up the balloon in, in Wuhan because they thought that the central leadership didn't want to hear bad news. The second part of the story, however, is that China came through this way better than almost any other country in the world. Uh, their response was decisive. They went into lockdown. Uh, they more or less got, they completely got the, the virus under control. And now the country has opened back up again. They're having rock concerts in Wuhan where it all began. So really very much, a, 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 you know, two, two stories there mm. on COVID. Well, and I do wonder, like, now what? You know, it's remarkable, right? As you said, both leaders, you know, not very good global views on either of them. But it is remarkable that the U.S. is even worth, you know, is it is it all Donald Trump, and is it all his handling of the virus, or is it really kind of the past four years? Um, 
So, you know, essentially what's happened, what's occurred now is that, and, 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 and the surprise, I guess the surprising thing from this survey is that attitudes towards both China and the U.S. were measured in countries that are all allies or close friends of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's, what's, what's doubly shocking and should be shocking, I think, to, to, to the White House, uh, is that this occurred in a year when China was condemned internationally for human rights abuses in Xinjiang, for cracking down on civil liberties in Hong Kong, for intimidation of Taiwan, for its assertive uh, policies in, in the South China Sea. All of this combined, uh, and yet the United States uh, and the, the Trump administration still come, come across, uh, come out of this survey worse than China. So it really tells you, I think, you know, yes, about China's standing in the world, but I think much more dramatically about America's standing in the world right now. So, Andy, that kind of begs the question, you know, as we get past this pandemic on a global scale, uh, again, not sure when that is, but uh, what will be the role of the United States vis-a-vis China? Um, It really seems like China was on this ascendancy, the U.S. pulling back with this America first uh, credo. uh, But I'm not sure that's still the case here. I mean, I don't think, as you point out here with the Pew Research data, neither of the supposed leaders scored well. Well, exactly. So, you know, there are some people that think that as a result of this election that will snap back to where it was before and the United States is going to reclaim its position of leadership uh, in the liberal global order, whatever that may mean. Other people, on the other hand, think that China is going to take advantage of its surging economy, the way that it came back and, and, and has done so well. Uh, the, the, the coronavirus is going to replace the United States, it's going to build a parallel set of institutions. Neither, of course, according uh, or the inference from this survey is, is forget it. Neither of those scenarios is going to happen. The world is leadership, uh, uh, lacking leadership right now. The best that we can expect, I think, is a far more transactional type of relationship between, between the United States and, and, and China uh, and a world that really um, lacks direction. Um, perhaps shifting coalitions between groups of countries, um, but essentially nobody in charge. Well, you know, and you know, Andy, we've talked about this before. I do wonder, depending, you know, the outcome of the November election, if we do have a change in the White House, how quickly, how easily can, let's say, a Biden White House repair some of the the strained relationships that have resulted over the last four four years and just got about 40 seconds here? Yeah, I I don't think that it's it's possible to to heal uh, this trust deficit uh, quickly. Um, uh, you know, trust once it's betrayed is very difficult to, to rebuild. Uh, China's in denial. Uh, it blames the foreigners, of course, for uh, foreign forces for all its uh, problems. The United States at least does have an opportunity to correct. And this is said to be one of the great strengths of democracy, uh, is this writing mechanism. And then there is an opportunity that voters have in the United States in November uh, to, um, to start to, to, to fix the problem. Yeah. Interesting. Andy Brown, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it all the time. We appreciate your perspective of all things China. Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown there. I mean, it really calls into question. Mm-hmm. Carol, I love your, your question there. Is it just simply calling up all allies and saying, just forget the last four <laughs> years, we're back? Right, exactly. And Andy's written about this. I mean, there's a lot that's already happened. And, you know, nations and alliances have moved forward as we've moved in a different direction as a nation. So um, time will certainly tell. Yeah, but that will certainly be on, I would think, on the top of the to-do list uh, for uh, the next president, whoever that may be.
Carol, we're just looking uh, the drive to the close today. Carol's me with J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist, TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. J.J., Carol and I have been batting back and forth here, as investors have uh, as well, to kind of the disconnect between financial markets and the economy. Is it simply a function of Federal Reserve Jay Powell having the spigots on and showing no signs of turning them off? That's what this trade is all about? Well, hey, Paul, I think that's part of it. I also think that if you look at a day like today, you know, the FANG stocks, let's face it, over the last few weeks have not been exact, had much FANG to them, so to speak. <laughs> uh, those coming alive, I think, also shows that people are looking a little bit forward and saying, okay, if, if, if we do have a market sell-off, you know, because of election or anything like that, or some sort of slowdown, which stocks still do well they do and actually if we go back to work which stocks still do well and again it becomes primarily the technology stocks because they've added clients and they've added sticky clients during the past few months so there's also let's face it apple and you know amazon leading the way with a little bit of excitement because they both have major events coming up tomorrow and you, you wonder how much of this is the sort of buy the rumor, sell the news a little bit, which they both have a little bit of a history of. Uh, not to say that longer term they haven't gone higher after that, but often they rally into either uh, Prime Day or uh, Apple Conference. Speaking of major events, it's a big week for banks. And I do wonder what are your expectations and how they might kind of help the trade here, JJ, and maybe overshadow some of investors' focus on the virus, if you will, and on further relief and aid from uh, policymakers. Sure, girl. I think that that's going to come down to one major thing, uh, you know, as you see it early, and that's going to be their trading mm. and how well they've gone there because that's obviously been a big part of their earnings the last two quarters and I think will be another big part of their earnings this quarter because although the uh, interest rate environment has improved for them a little bit, uh, you know, let's be honest, if we're getting excited about 80 basis points on the 10-year rate, you know, you certainly hope that's not the long-term view. So uh, much of it, I think, also, as you know, covering this uh, so many times, is going to go to with the statements that they make going forward. Uh, you know, what is Mr. Diamond going to come out and say tomorrow about the rest of the world? And, and his last couple of quarters, he has moved the market a little bit with some of the things he's had to say. So I think them setting the table for the earnings season is also important. Uh, I think this will be the last quarter where companies can get away with just showing some improvement, even if they don't necessarily meet the numbers that are expected. And I think those companies that miss on this round of earnings are definitely going to be punished heavily. Hey, JJ, as I look at this market, it seems a little bit like a heads I win, tails you lose for equities and other risk assets in the sense that 
Okay, if I see some data out there, like we did over the weekend, pandemic numbers are getting worse, that suggests that you know the economic recovery may be pushed down the road. Then, if in that scenario, I buy the big growth names like we're seeing trading today, uh, the Amazons of the world. Conversely, you know, if I see, oh boy, we're going to get a vaccine data, we're going to get a vaccine quickly by the end of the year, then people will be back to work next year. Then I want to rotate into cyclical names. It's it's kind of an odd the way the market is kind of viewing this. Is that kind of how you view it as well? Yeah, it's really been amazing. I think a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, uh, you know, how do I play this in case of a pullback? And not that I want to throw water on the parade, so to speak, but it's something you should be considering. And I think we may get, if the rest of the week goes pretty well, the one thing that I think you may start to see next week, Paul, to be honest, I don't think you've seen a huge um, attention of the market on the election so far. I think next week we begin to pay a little bit more attention because, you know, four years ago, I think the one thing people learned was don't get caught up sort of too early in polls, et cetera. And it'll be interesting to see, for me to see next week, if we start to see, particularly in uh, sectors like healthcare, a little bit, and financials actually, a little bit more jockeying there as people consider, you know, will the Democrats take the House and Senate, the presidency, et cetera and what the expected uh, policies will be coming forward for that. I think this is one last week of hoping out, holding out hope for stimulus. If stimulus doesn't come out by the rest of the week, I think you may see the market's uh, focus change a little bit to, okay, now we have – either way, I think we're going to change to, okay, now we have to concentrate on the election and what that means a little bit longer term. So listen, I got to take a step back here because, you know, none of, none of this really matters until we get this virus under control. And I do wonder, and obviously stimulus does matter, but, you know, I'm looking at virus cases in Illinois, seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases set a new high, mm-hmm. topping numbers from early May, 13 more deaths reported on Monday. You got to be watching this, JJ. Um, what are you seeing? What's going on around you guys? Well, I, I think that that's a great point, Carol, because... Uh, no matter what else happens, that's sort of the overhanging uh, piece of news that can change the market at any moment. And so you have all these other sub-stories that are all 1A. COVID is definitely number one. But until we get some real progress on COVID or I think a major change in the cases, I think it's going to take a little bit of a, oh, wow, we have to keep our eye there but nothing is significantly changing. And I think you can see that a little bit today on just what you see, A, in the market overall. But you're making a great point for those who watch the volatility. You see the VIX up a little bit today, and so you're saying, oh, that's no big deal. But that's not how it should react on a day like today. It should actually be lower. It's still holding on to that 25 level. And it's been between 25 and 30, and I think many traders are looking at it that if we're below 25, that's a little bit more of an all-clear. If we're above 30, that's time to say, hey, you know, something to consider here. And one of the interesting things to me is as I look out at the election, we see the futures putting in an expect- expectation for high, higher volatility, which, of course, makes sense. But then that volatility staying elevated for the few weeks after the election because now you have the mail-in uh, ballots, which may take longer to actually decide who the winners are. Yeah, that VIX trade is an important point. We talked about that a little bit last week because we saw that, you know, we've seen that where stocks are up and, 
you're seeing the VIX still move up, and that doesn't quite make complete sense. So um, <laughs> good thing to point out. JJ Kinahan, thank you so much, as always. Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade on the phone guys. from Chicago. And yeah, you know, you know, Paul, as you, you look around these cities and just seeing the numbers go up, um, you know, until we get it under control, it's kind of the same old story, you know, that yeah, we're going to be talking it, it, about. It really is. And uh, it's just it's kind of it's gotten regional. Um, fortunately, mm-hmm. the New York metro area is doing a good job. But I saw El Paso, Texas is mm. a new hotspot in the continental U.S. So it kind of moves around based upon, uh, I think, behavior. Yeah, behavior. exactly. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.